0: Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am delighted today to bring us an expert in food systems and a children's book author, Catherine Pryor. Catherine and I met in Seattle at a food med conference, which was part of the Washington State's Healthy Food and Healthcare Initiative. It's part of the Healthcare Without Harm program. And I later learned that Catherine had written an incredibly wonderful book called Sylvia's Spinach. And the marriage of her work in trying to improve food in the healthcare realm combined with her fabulous writing in Sylvia's Spinach made me think, oh, a perfect radio guest. So, Kathy, welcome.
1: Thank you so much. I love your program. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Okay, so we have to start out a little bit with your background. So I know that you are very well trained in sustainable food systems. You have a master's actually in environment community with a focus in local and sustainable food systems from Antioch University in Seattle. You've done some work with Food and Water Watch. You've done some work in getting community garden programs up and running. I'm curious about your role as Program Director for Washington Healthy Food and Healthcare. What exactly is your role under that umbrella of Healthcare Without Harm?
1: So what I do is I work with hospitals across Washington State, hospitals who are interested in improving the health and the sustainability of the foods that they're offering in their patient meals and cafeterias. And what we do is we offer free resources, we offer educational opportunities. It's basically trying to remove whatever barriers we can between these hospitals that want to do the right thing support healthy food systems and make it as easy as possible for them to do that. Then we also do things like I'll work with clinicians who are interested in food policies and things that will make a healthier regional, national, local food system. So we'll do things like organize visits with nurses and dietitians to senators' offices, things like that, that will help our politicians understand how food and health are so deeply connected. We really are working on food systems issues from two perspectives. We're working on it through a a market perspective, looking at the size of the healthcare food purchasing power. Estimates are it's something like... $12 billion nationally that hospitals are spending on foods and beverages. Um, But then we're also kind of harnessing the moral authority of healthcare professionals. We know that people trust them. They're trusted members of the community. Politicians are really, really interested in in their perspective and their expertise. And so we're trying to sort of marry those two things together, the policy and the purchasing, to help advance a, a healthier food system for all.
0: You know, I love your combination of words, moral authority. And I think when we look at the healthcare system and we look at hospitals in particular, where else should there be a healing food system in place? You know, where could it not be more important than using food as medicine in a hospital? And that's really why I love your work.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, and you look at the most trusted professions in the United States, right? You know, this this kind of data is collected every year. We know that for at least the last decade, nurses have been the most trusted profession, and we know that doctors and pharmacists are also in the top five. People look to healthcare professionals to help them understand what decisions they should be making and what they should be valuing. And I think that it's really a missed opportunity for hospitals who aren't engaging engaging in healthy food work because if you think about it, there's a, often a big disconnect with the, the message that, that a patient is receiving from their doctor, their nutritionist, whoever it may be, who says, you know, you should be eating more vegetables and less red meat, less fried food, cut out the sugary beverages, and then they leave the appointment, they go downstairs to the cafeteria, and what's on the menu but burger, fries, and a soda and i just really think that hospitals who aren't engaged in this are missing a really key opportunity to carry the, the messaging that their healthcare professionals know is so important and they're not able to often show it in practice.
0: Mhm. Absolutely and i think that the more savvy consumers get the more they are looking to the hospital and saying hey I see mixed messages here. And so, for hospitals to really stand up and say, yes, we truly are a healthcare institution, it really is imperative that they change what they serve in their cafeterias and in vending machines.
1: It is. And, you know, I'm seeing that more and more at the hospitals who are really front runners in this work. One hospital that I work a lot with here in Seattle is the University of Washington Medical Center. And they had increasing numbers of patients who were in for cancer treatments who were requesting what they were calling a clean diet. They wanted organic food and they listened to that. And so we're starting to see where patients are asking for these foods. And the clinicians who are working with patients are supporting it, which I love to see. I think it's such an incredible way to message that. And if you think about it, too, it's also a patient menu is a great learning opportunity because, for better or worse, you have a rather captive audience. You know, if you're sitting there, if you're a patient, maybe you've been there for a couple of days. It's a great opportunity to get out messages about the importance of things like organic food, like more sustainable food, to offer some nutritional lessons, things like that. And I'm starting to see certain hospitals really harnessing those opportunities to share messages about healthy eating with their patients.
0: Mm -hmm. I would love to see some data showing a quicker healing rate in hospitals that do offer better food, getting patients out of the hospital sooner as a result of the food choices? I don't know if anybody is collecting data like that, but I would expect that Healthcare Without Harm would be doing it before anybody else. <laughs> we would love to have that
1: data. I would love to have that. Unfortunately, I have not seen it yet, and I... I'm not even sure exactly how you would set that up, but it's funny that you mentioned that because I know that the University of Washington Medical Center, which I just referenced, is interested in the exact same thing. And I think that's a great opportunity for us to partner with our facilities that are really research-focused. And, for example, they want to look at what foods they could be serving patients That would actually increase their healing time. Are there certain superfoods that they could be serving that would increase the rate of healing that patients are experiencing? So I think that's going to be sort of the next frontier. What I think we're really going to need to start doing a better job of, and I say that from our perspective, is partnering with these incredible research facilities and get them to start asking these hard questions and starting to put numbers to things that, you know, it it makes sense from a common sense perspective that better food would lead to healing rates, increased healing rates. But actually having numbers to back that up, I think will speak to the folks in hospital administration who are looking at those kinds of numbers and want to have that data in front of them. Now I should ask, is food med... An annual conference? You know, we actually hold it every two years. However, in an effort to start offering it more frequently, we have started partnering with another conference that Healthcare Without Harm puts on called Clean Med, mm-hmm. and that's focused on general sustainability across the hospital. So that's things like making sure that you don't have chemicals of concern. You're trying to get out, you know, PVC tubing and things like that, looking at less waste, smarter energy, Things like that. And so we actually have partnered with the Clean Med Conference to try and hold it every year. That does unfortunately mean that we only have a food track of a larger conference. But it is still a really wonderful thing to go to. It did allow us a little bit of a larger audience with who we were reaching out to. Although I know there's a lot of us who really miss two days of just talking about food because that it's such a fantastic opportunity to to partner with people from across the country.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I want to make sure that if we have any listeners who are in the healthcare. Field or if they're in the healthcare industry, if they are providing food to hospitals that they know about healthcare without harm, and the website is www.noharm.org and then specifically www.healthyfoodandhealthcare.org. So I encourage everyone who believes in this connection between food, medicine, and healing to Go to these websites and learn about this incredible organization. Now, I also want to mention, you said that hospitals spend in the neighborhood of about $12 billion on food. The beauty of those large numbers is that those dollars can help drive a more sustainable food system just from a supply-demand kind of So, for example, you know, I often tell people when we go to the grocery store as individual consumers, we have our own individual dollars as votes. But when you're in charge of buying food for an institution, you have many more dollars voting for you. And I think that there's a real opportunity to shape the food system, to bring more farmers and specifically organic farmers on the land because, hey, they've got a contract with a hospital now and they know they're going to have a set income.
1: Absolutely.
0: I mean, and I, you know, just crunched
1: some really basic numbers. And I kind of, I think, a national average for what a household will spend on food in a year is, I think it's about $6,000 for the average household. Whereas a lot of the, the larger urban hospitals that I work with, they're spending 2 to $3 million a year on food.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: the choices that they make have an opportunity to be amplified in a way that individual consumers just don't quite have. And you're right, it absolutely does create up to opportunities for our sustainable farmers. There's a blueberry farmer just north of Seattle, Bow Hill Blueberries, and she's in the process of her three-year transition to organic, which means that at this point she has not been able to command the price point that organic does. But what she's done is create partnerships with several hospitals in the area, and they'll do things like they'll call her up and order 250 pounds of blueberries. Now she also has a thriving, you know, she goes to the farmers markets. She has a u-pick. She does all of that. But a, an individual family isn't going to call up and order 250 pounds of the blueberries. And what it's allowed is an incredible diversification of her marketing plan. So it, I, my hope is that this is something that we continue to grow and continue to grow models like this.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, when hospitals. Sign on to a healthy food in healthcare pledge. What does that mean exactly? Well, it's really an
1: indication of intent. We don't hold people's feet to the fire and, and check in on them all the time to see how they're doing. What it is, is a hospital signifying that this is something that is important to them. And then we do check in with them once a year or so to see how things are going, to collect some very basic data about how they've changed their purchasing. And that's really just so that we know that we're doing our jobs correctly. Now, that said, we do have a lot of hospitals who will do things like blow it up poster size and post it in their cafeteria, and I'd love to see that because – to me, it helps explain to staff who might not really be that aware of the things that are happening in food service. It helps explain to patients that the food that they're eating and being served is actually very closely tied to their health. And it, it really kind of lets people know the hard work that's going on behind the scenes in the food and nutrition department. Now, there is another program for people who really like numbers, and I know there's a lot of them out there, there is another program that Healthcare Without Harm is sponsoring now called the Healthier Hospitals Initiative. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit different where they are actually looking for quarterly data. And in terms of food, the things that they have chosen to focus on are something called Healthier Beverages. So helping hospitals track what percentages of their beverage purchases would be considered healthy. It's increasing local and sustainable purchasing. And then finally, something called the Balanced Menus Challenge, which is asking hospitals to reduce their meat and poultry purchasing by 20%. So that is actually going to be collecting hard numbers, and I think that's going to really help us paint a picture nationwide of the impact that the hospitals who are engaging in this work are having.
0: Well, I think under your leadership, Washington State is really a model in terms of what is going on and what can be done. And I know we have to let our listeners know that we are having a wonderful discussion with Kathy Pryor. And she is officially the program director for Washington Healthy Food and Healthcare, which is an initiative under Healthcare Without Harm. This is a national program that improves the food that people in hospitals and healthcare institutions have an opportunity to receive and benefit from, but we also have to talk about your children's book, but I just have to make one more comment, and that is that you just prepared a terrific report, Healthy Food and Healthcare, Washington's Year in Review, and any state that wants some examples of how to do it well can go to this report, and there are issues that you take up, including how certain medical centers have taken a stand on antibiotic misuse and how other hospitals... Hospitals are launching produce prescriptions, so we can talk about that if we somehow have some extra minutes at the end. But I want our listeners to know that this report is available as a wonderful blueprint for what other states can be doing. But I have to get into your other—I don't know how you fit it all in actually today—but <laughs> this other a magnificent publication that you've produced called Sylvia's Spinach. It is a children's book. That really, you know, it really brought tears to my eyes. It made me laugh, but it was so sweet and so real. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about how on earth did someone in your position who's working with institutional food programs decide to write a children's book? Well, you know, it's funny because I I
1: have loved writing since I was eight years old, which is funny because now I write for eight-year-olds. But (laughs) I've always loved creative writing. And I spent a good chunk of my twenties trying to make it as a professional writer and just, you know, was never able to support myself doing it. And so went to grad school, got a different degree, got a job that I absolutely love, but I found that there was just something missing in my life. And I realized when I really thought about it that I I was missing writing. And so I had started just taking just evening classes once in a while on creative writing at my local community college. And there was one day I was down in Olympia, down in our state government, advocating for farm to school funding. And A dad told a story about how his little girl wouldn't eat spinach until she grew it in her school garden. And then she couldn't get enough of spinach. You know, she wanted it in her eggs and she wanted it on her sandwiches. She wanted it on everything. And I remember sitting there, you know, in in this meeting with a state senator thinking, man, that would be a good children's book. And I think I could write that book. And then I thought, you know, kids' books are really short. That I, I have time to do that, yeah. and went home and wrote a draft of it, and I ended up taking a class on writing for children and young adults, just because there is a, a really specific formula that a lot of kids books go through that I needed to understand a little bit more. so I took this evening class and um, workshopped it through, and then I had a, a randomly I had a good friend who used to be a children 's book publisher in new york and I emailed it to him asking if he still had any friends in the business that he might want to pass it along to. And he told me that he was, in fact, launching a new publishing house called Readers to Eaters that would be focused 100% on food literacy and said that he would like it to be one of the, the first books that they published. And when the universe hands you something like that, you just say yes.
0: Absolutely. Well, and we should give a plug to Readers to Eaters. and My intention is to have Philip Lee, who is heading up Readers to Eaters, Food Literacy from the Ground Up, as one of our guests on Food Soothe Radio, because I think his work is really tremendous and unique. But he is celebrating the kind of book that helps children fall in love with their food. And Before the program, we were talking about how much I miss reading to children, because as a parent, one of my fondest memories was cuddling up with my children, not in front of a screen, but in front of a book, and holding the book in our hands, and what a wonderful opportunity to have a very precious, close, intimate moment, and it's something that all children need, and isn't it wonderful to have a story that nourishes us in so many ways, So Sylvia is one of these great kids. And I I should let our listeners know, too, that the illustrations in this book are so beautifully wedded to the words. And the illustrations are charming. They make us laugh. But tell us about Sylvia. She's just one of these kids that turns her nose up to spinach, and she is transformed, isn't she? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So Sylvia is just a little kid full of spunk. Not that I know anything about about being a little kid like that, but uh, <laughs> she definitely knows her mind, and she knows that she does not like spinach. And early on in the book, her teacher decides that they're going to have a school garden. And she, unfortunately, Sylvia has the absolute worst thing that could happen to you at seven years old happen, which is that she gets the spinach seeds. She gets her least favorite vegetable seeds. And so over the course of the book, though, she actually sort of starts to care for them a little bit you know she sees them pop up from seeds and waters them and nurtures them and then they're in the they pop up in the school garden and they're ready to be eaten and everyone else is eating them and she has to try it and it actually turns out that she likes her spinach so (laughs) you know it's it's one of those things that when i was writing it i was sort of like wow you know, I I hope that kids like this, and I actually, I don't have children, so I actually had to borrow a friend's three-year-old to see, you know, if she could actually fit through all 600 words, and she did. But it has been absolutely wonderful to go into classrooms and to read with my friend's kids because the kids really do respond to this character. They love her, they identify with her, and they really seem to get a kick out of the challenges that she faces, and then her her eventual turnaround. It's really nice, too, because it lets us have conversations about a lot of different things. So we talk about things like how plants grow, and as more and more schools start developing school gardens and school garden curriculums, I think that talking about food and talking about plants are going to start going hand in hand. So it gives us some great opportunities to talk about that, but it also gives us a chance to talk about things like, trying new foods, which it's a nice thing to talk about with kids. And I I try to beat them on their level. And we talk about what foods they do like and what foods they don't like. And then we'll talk about things like how your taste buds change as you're growing. And as your tongue changes, you might like different foods. And it gives them a chance to try things with sort of an opt-out, if that makes sense. I tell Mm -hmm. them they just—they have to try it. They don't have to like it, but they have to try new foods. And they seem to really respond to that, which has been the best thing that could have happened.
0: Absolutely. I'm not surprised. And I want to let our listeners know that Kathy has a website. It's com. It's Katherine with a K, Pryor, P is in Peter, R-Y-O-R.com. And we'll make sure we put that link connected to this program. But on your website, there's a beautiful picture of you. There's a beautiful picture of children interacting in the classroom and the cafeteria using this book. But you've got uh, you've got a homepage. You've got the background. You can get a little preview of the book. But then you've got a whole page on classroom activities, which is perfect for children both who are in the classroom but also at home. You know what can parents do with children? I think classroom activities are great for home activities too, like weekend activities. So I oh, love
1: absolutely. Yeah, and one of the things I found it was basically that I was starting to get emails from teachers and librarians who maybe didn't have the budget for an author visit, but they wanted to somehow tie in the book with their plant curriculum, and it's Mm -hmm. sort of perfect age, but first graders are the ones who, you know, you start looking at plant, plant biology, if you will, in first grade, and it ties in really nice with stuff on school gardens, and so I had more and more teachers and librarians wanting to use it and just kind of asking what worked, so I came up with a list that anybody could use of things that either I had come up with or very clever librarians
0: had come up with that have been a lot of fun. Well, I think those of us who work in education fields, those of us who work in healthcare fields, really the beauty comes when we cross pollinate. And I think having a library of books and resources that we can use to make what we teach come alive just helps make it all stick. And when I'm looking at this book, I'm thinking about your healthcare report where you've got a prescription program where doctors smartly are giving patients prescriptions for the best-tasting medicine on earth, which is produce. But (laughs) wouldn't it be wonderful if a book came with it so that a child who got the prescription also got a book to help the food taste all the better?
1: And that's one of the things. I mean, I would love to see it happen. And it, it doesn't necessarily have to be mine, but unfortunately, and one of the reasons that it turns out Readers to Eaters was interested in this book is there's only something like three books in the country that are dealing with school gardens for this age group. There's, there's really not a lot of them. And I think it's such a great way to complement the experiences that the kids are having in the garden. You know, the thing that I had forgotten was how emotionally invested kids get in the characters in their books. You know, there's still sort of a a fine line between imagination and reality at that age. And I think they really start to think of these characters and books as sort of like friends. You know, they become very familiar and very comforting to them. So having a book that you can use to complement school garden curriculum is really, really helpful.
0: That is a very insightful statement because I remember when I was doing research into media literacy or teaching children about how to interpret media messages directed at them, one of the ways marketers use characters so beautifully or well to their ends is that children do find these characters to be their friends. So isn't it so much better that one of these new friends that they've made in a book helps bring something like spinach come to life as opposed to something that isn't good for their bodies or the environment.
1: Well, and of course, you found my ulterior motive (laughs) in all of this, although I would never admit it to a classroom of six-year-olds. One of the things that I deal with on a daily basis is adults who maybe haven't had positive early experiences with healthy foods. And so one of my goals in life is to help kids have really positive experiences with healthy foods because, unfortunately, that is something that companies that manufacture unhealthy foods, and I I think manufacture is the the right word there. Mm -hmm. The companies that manufacture unhealthy foods are so darn good at making them Fun. And so that's one of the things that I think that those of us in this sort of good food movement really need to work on. We need to start making good food fun and helping kids get excited about it. Because if you have really positive early experiences with the food, chances are you're going to maintain that the rest of your life. Whereas if you don't, it might be something you pick up later on, but but you might not. Exactly, and that's exactly the
0: thinking behind the Ronald McDonald character. (laughs) I didn't want to say it. Leave it to me to bring it up. They've
1: done a phenomenal job of creating lifetime relationships between this experience of being there.
0: That's right. Well, Kathy, I knew our time together would be very quickly run out, but do you have a charge that you want to leave our listeners with?
1: There's so many things that I'm really inspired by people doing on a a daily basis. I guess the one thing, the one common thread that I um, have had throughout my work is just asking people not to be afraid to ask for change and not to be afraid to try something new. I think as humans, we really don't like change. It's hard. But the fact is there's so much momentum right now about improving health and improving our knowledge of healthy food systems that it's no longer the strange thing to do to ask your hospital, to ask your school, to ask your grocery store to carry better food. I think that we all need to start using our voices to speak up for what we really want and, and not be afraid, not think that it's, it's going to make us seem like outliers, because actually this has gone from an initiative into a movement, and I think that any time any of us can use our voices,
0: it's well worth taking the chance well Kathy we'll have to end it there I want to remind our listeners again that we've been speaking with Kathy Pryor she's a writer and a good food advocate based in Seattle Washington and she is the author of this terrific new book Sylvia Spinach and we will leave the website katherinepryor.com on our radio website I want to thank our listeners for joining us remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia Missouri and mostly I want to thank you Kathy for your terrific work and for being my guest. Oh, thank you.
1: Such a pleasure.